0: When I was at uni, there was a great thing called, when I was at uni, there was a great thing called a supplementary exam. If you failed a subject, but only by a little bit, maybe you got 47% instead of 50%, sometimes, if the lecturer was really kind, you'd get a second chance. Uh, you could sit another version of the final exam, and if you passed that test, then you'd pass the whole subject. And it was fantastic, wasn't it? A a second chance to prove yourself. It did come with a catch. No matter how well you did in the second exam, your maximum mark would be a bare pass. So even if you aced the second chance, your final mark would be only 50%, a bare pass. It was a pretty good deal for students. You get a second chance... Though it might be a little bit worrying for you to hear this as you realise that those people, these people who only just scraped through uni, they're the people now designing your bridges that you drive over or doing the accounts for your business. Uh, We love getting a second chance, another go when you're stuffed up, a chance to make good, to prove yourself, to fix things. That's the idea behind movies like Groundhog Day, doing the same day over and over again until you get it right. It's a nightmare until you realise it's a gift. The question for us today is, does God give second chances? It's a question you might have wondered when you've done what feels like a big sin or when you're stuck in sin, a sin that's become a habit And you wonder whether God would ever give you a second chance. It's a question God's people were asking hundreds of years ago, uh, thousands of years ago, actually, a question that is the heart of the prophecy of Zechariah. So as I said earlier, the rest of this term, we're going to be listening to God's voice as he speaks through the prophet Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah is one of those shorter prophets at the back of the Old Testament, a part of the Bible we 're probably not so familiar with, except that Zechariah is quoted loads in the new testament you 've probably heard bits of Zechariah without knowing it. Uh, zechariah got his message from God about five hundred and twenty years before Jesus. We know that he got his message from God five hundred and twenty years before Jesus uh, because he tells us straight up in verse one, so zechariah one one have a look in your Bible. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Idu. Now, straight up, you read this introduction, you go, right, I need to understand some context. Who's Darius? What's happening with God's people at this time? Now, the name Darius might sound familiar. A king named Darius had Daniel thrown in the den of lions. Problem is, this ain't the same bloke. Zechariah is set a couple of decades after the events of Daniel. So we need to get a bit of history. Now we get to Zephaniah. Last week we heard from the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah was speaking before the Babylonians invaded. He was speaking after the northern kingdom was destroyed, but before the southern kingdom, Judah, was taken into exile. So he was in that in-between stage. The northern kingdom, they're gone the southern kingdom still has got a couple of decades left before they get invaded. In 587 BC, Babylon invaded Judah and took the brightest and best as prisoners, as exiles, to Babylon. Uh, In 549 BC, there's a massive change in world politics. The Persian Empire conquers the Babylonian Empire. And with this change in dominance, Cyrus, the Persian emperor, as he now has control of the world, at least in his perspective, he, he decides, actually, I'm going to send home all the different peoples that the Babylonians have conquered, and that included the Jewish people. And they got, the Jewish exiles got sent back to Jerusalem, or at least some of them went, and they, they kind of go in a few different uh, waves. And this is recorded in the book of Ezra. And as we heard this morning, Cyrus didn't just send them home. He gave the exiles materials to rebuild their city and temple. However, there was initially opposition to the rebuilding efforts, and so it was stopped. So they get there, they get started. It stops pretty much straight away for about 30 years. Nothing happens. During which time, uh, the Persian Empire goes through a couple of kings, and this is where we pick things up in Zechariah. Darius has been on the throne two years. Now, when we were reading from Ezra earlier today, we read about how God raised up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. And through the prophets, God encouraged the people to get with the program. Come on, come on, guys, finish rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. That's what I want you to do. It's what Cyrus told you to do. Get with the program. And so the Jewish people write to King Darius to get permission to build. And that's what we read in Ezra 6. Uh, Darius searches the archives and discovers his predecessor, Cyrus, had not only allowed the rebuilding, but he provided resources. And so Darius does the same thing with the threat of impaling people who have anything to do to stop it. So Darius makes sure there's no stopping at this time. And then... In the sixth year of his reign, the temple is complete. So Ezra 6.15, the temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. All right, now back to Zechariah one one. where are we? Zechariah's prophecy is set in the early years of Darius' reign. In chapter 1, twice we're told, uh, we get two prophecies that are set in the second year of Darius' reign. Chapter 7 is set in the fourth year. So Zechariah, at least the first half of Zechariah, comes from that time of rebuilding. The second half of Zechariah might come from an even later time, we're not told. All right, so that's the context. Returning from exile, but there's no temple. There's nowhere to worship the God of Israel. And there's also no king. Did you hear Darius 1, uh, sorry, Zechariah 1-1 mentions King Darius. He's the king, but he's Persian, he's pagan, not a worshipper of Yahweh. So we're in a time when there's a question mark over God's promises. Will God keep his promises? Will God give his people a second chance? Will it ever be that God will keep his promise to be present with his people? The temple is, is all about God's presence with his people. Is that ever going to happen again? And will they ever have God's king on the throne ruling over God's people? And these questions, this is what makes Zechariah a great part of the Bible for you and I, for us to read. Because we might feel discouraged, wondering what, what on earth is God doing in the world? Will God keep his promises? Maybe you feel the opposition to the things of God. Well, through Zechariah, God speaks to his people who are feeling the same kind of thing. And so Zechariah is going to be a great encouragement for us. All right, let's get into the prophecy now. So in Zechariah, God's first message to Zechariah is there's going to be a second chance for God's people. So read with me from verse 2. Verse 2, God says, The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your, the ancestors, your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets they live forever. But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. These verses are the key to Zechariah. They're a summary, they're an overview of everything Zechariah's on about. If you get nothing else from Zechariah, and I trust you will, we're going to be looking at Zechariah for the whole term, if you get nothing else, though, this is the thing to get. These five verses are a summary of all of that history we just heard. God was angry with his people, they had sinned. The kind of things we heard the other week in Zephaniah. They worshipped pretend gods. They loved money rather than God. They oppressed the weak and the vulnerable. God was angry. He warned his people, but they would not listen. Verse 4. And so the Babylonians came. And Zechariah's message is, don't be like your ancestors. Don't keep up the family tradition. Unlike your ancestors, return to God. Turn back to God. Uh, the word translated return, it's often translated repent. What does it mean to repent? Well, it means to return. Stop running away from God. Stop ignoring God and looking to pretend gods or other things for security and joy. Turn to the living and true God for these things. Turn back. The amazing thing is, This is what God says after generations of sin, after generations of people turning away from God, ignoring God, God offers a second chance. Return to God and God will return to you. It's a promise of presence. This is better than a second chance. Normally when you get a second chance, you've got to prove yourself, prove yourself worthy of that second chance. But God says, no, no, it's not about proving yourself. He offers grace. He he offers presence just for turning back. And we see this in the vision God gives Zechariah. Uh, This is a really big vision. It begins in verse 7 of chapter 1 and goes all the way through to chapter 6. It's a vision with multiple scenes, multiple parts. So it's going to take us a few weeks to get through it. Today, uh, we're going to look at the first four scenes, four parts of this vision, uh, which are pictures of God's undeserved and overflowing grace. Now, as we read the first of these scenes, as Marge read it this morning, it's a bit strange, isn't it? These, these are strange visions, strange things that, Zechariah saw, as you read these visions, if you're familiar with Revelation or Daniel, it sounds a bit like them. We call the style of those books apocalyptic. Now, okay, a bit of an English lesson, actually it's a Greek lesson. Apocalyptic does not mean, does not mean the end of the world. Apocalyptic, if I was a teacher I'd get, it to say, get you to say it with me, it does not mean the end of the world. Apocalyptic means unveiling revealing, opening your eyes. It's like the curtain is pulled back and we're seeing what's really going on in the world, what God's doing behind the scenes, if you like. Apocalyptic writing uses visions with loads of symbolic images and it can be a bit confusing, but this is the good news. Like you read it and you're, whoa, what's this mean? The good news is the prophet also doesn't have a clue what it means and so he always has his guide with him. And so he asks the guide, hey, what's that thing mean that I've just saw? And the angel tells him what it means and guess what? We get to read it and so we don't have to be so confused. You just need to slow down and listen to what God says. And so although these visions are strange, it's not that scary. God has not given us the Bible. He hasn't spoken to you and me to confuse us. And No, he wants to speak to us. He's revealing the truth. That's why this is an apocalypse. It's revealing the truth to us. So let's get into this vision. All right, so the vision has got... We're going to get into the first four scenes anyway. The first scene is a vision of a man on a red horse. Man on the red horse. And the main point of this vision is God is angry with the nations, but this is the good news... He's going to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. So have a read from verse 7, Zechariah one seven. In the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Idu. So that's the, the heading. We know we're starting something new. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine, Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, And I'm very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says my towns will again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. So in this vision, there are four horses, four different coloured horses and they're led by the red horse and the man who rides on it, who seems to be the same The man and the angel of the Lord, I think they're actually the same being. So, But the four horses are more important. Why the four horses? Why four? We're going to come across the number four a few times in this vision. It seems four refers to the four points of the compass because we're told that these four horses are scouts. They've scouted out the whole world, north, south, east and west, and they've returned with a report of what they've seen. And they've seen something troubling. But it's hard to understand why it's a problem. They've seen, what's their troubling report? The whole world is at rest and in peace. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? Hang on. World peace. That's what we want. But you read it in the vision. It's a bad thing. It's clearly a bad thing. And we know it's a bad thing because the moment the report comes in, the angel of the Lord cries out, verse 12, How long, O Lord? Peace is not what the angel wants to hear. So what's going on? Well, the nations shouldn't be at peace because, verse 15, these nations, the nations of the world, have sinned. In particular, nations like the Assyrians and the Babylonians and, well yes, God used them to punish Israel and Judah, but they took things too far. They relished In trampling God's people. They they themselves sinned in their violence and oppression of God's people. That's verse fifteen. The problem is they've sinned and they don't care. They've sinned and they're prospering. They're at peace, they're at peace and at rest. Where is God's justice and judgment? Now that question, we've got to hold on to that question, because it's not answered until chapter nine of Zechariah. Though we are told in verse 15, God is angry with the nations for the violence and their sin. But the main point of this vision isn't God's judgment of the nations, that's coming later. The main point is God's overflowing mercy. And so we get this picture of a measuring line, verse 16, God sending surveyors making plans to rebuild Jerusalem. The town planners are coming to rebuild it in peace and prosperity. Now hold on to this picture of the measuring line because it comes back in chapter 2. But for now, after this promise of peace and prosperity in the towns of Israel, instantly the scene changes. And we move from the four horses to two visions that that go together together. The four horns and the four craftsmen. Four horns, four craftsmen, starting at verse 18. Then I looked up and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. All right, pretty strange, but don't, just hold on, we'll get there. Remember what we said before, the number four refers to the four points of the compass. So what are these two pictures? Horns in apocalyptic literature refer to power, kings or kingdoms. Actually, all through the Old Testament, the picture of a horn is always about someone powerful, a king or something like that. So the four horns refer to the nations of the world, the whole world who invaded and destroyed Israel and Judah, empires like Assyria and Babylon, but also the smaller nations that took advantage of the turmoil. But the next vision is of the four craftsmen or four builders. And what do they do? Well, they rebuild Jerusalem. God's going to use the nations of the world to help with restoring his people, which is what we see with Cyrus and Darius, directly providing material for the temple. But it's also referring to other nations who are going about their thing but are actually providing the conditions for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. The point of these two visions, God has punished. He sent the horns against Israel and Judah. And in his mercy, God will rebuild and restore. The final scene in the vision today takes us back to the measuring line. But this scene's a bit different. We're going to land here and this is the best part. Instead of the measuring line being stretched out, So plans can be drawn up to rebuild the city. In this fourth vision, the fourth scene, God says, hey, don't worry. Don't worry about a measuring line because the renewed and restored Jerusalem won't have boundaries or borders because it's not just going to be for the people of Israel. It's going to be overflowing with people from all over the world. So read with me from verse 1. This is Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another, another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. This is like what we heard at the start. God's presence with his people and his protection. They're not going to need a physical war because God is their protector. We're going to keep going. Verse 6, Come, come, flee from the land of the north declares the Lord. For I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, Zion, escape you who live in daughter Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says, After the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion. For I am coming, and I will live among you," declares the Lord God, saying, "You're going to come back from Babylon. You're going to plunder them as you return, like like the Egypt, like the Israelites plundered the Egyptians as they left Egypt to the promised land. It's going to be the same thing again, but this is going to be better. This is even going to be better than the Exodus from Egypt. Why? Well, come on to me to verse eleven, because in verse eleven, this is where we appear in the vision you are in this vision verse 11 explains why you can't have a border for jerusalem because there are so many people in it why is it that you cannot contain the population of jerusalem verse 11 many nations will be joined with the lord in that day and will become my people i will live among you and you will know that the lord almighty has sent me to you The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Uh, This is incredible. Uh, This is an amazing promise. This is so much better than a second chance. When you get a second chance, it's an opportunity for you to do better. To make up for your mistakes. But with second chances, you can't undo the past. Like with a supplementary exam, your past remains. No matter how well you do in the makeup exam, the best you'll get is scraping through with a bare pass. But God's promise of grace is so much better. It's better than a second chance. His promise is that the future is going to be better than the past. The whole world in Jerusalem, God's future is a borderless, multi-ethnic city. God's presence with his people, and not just Jews, but people from every nation. Now, God's promise is somewhat fulfilled in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. In the centuries leading up to the coming of Jesus, Jerusalem is resettled by God's people and the temple is rebuilt. But you open up the pages of the New Testament and you read the Gospels and hang on, uh-uh, this promise is not fulfilled. God's people are once again occupied by a foreign empire. The Romans are in control. And Jerusalem is hardly overflowing with a multicultural population, united in praise and worship of the one true God. No, Gentiles are excluded. Walls are built to keep the nations, to keep people like you and me out. Is God able to keep his promise? But when we get to the book of Acts, which we heard from at the start of this year, after Jesus died and rose again and and just before he ascended to his heavenly throne, his followers asked him about the promises of God, about restoring the kingdom acts one six then they that's the disciples gathered around Jesus and asked him, "Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is Jerusalem going to finally be like we heard about?" In Zechariah, are you going to restore the kingdom? And and is God going to keep his promises? Is today the day? And Jesus answered, verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we see in the book of Acts, as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, all kinds of people, Ethiopian eunuchs, Roman soldiers, Philippian jailers and businesswomen, people from all kinds of nations and ethnicities, they hear the gospel and they believe. They trust in Jesus and it join the people of God. The borders of Jerusalem explode, not as Christians move house and set, settle in the Middle East, but as people from all around the globe call upon Israel's king, the Lord Jesus, and are saved. Right now, in churches around the world, God's word to Zechariah, the vision of Zechariah, is being fulfilled. Praise God. Praise God he has kept his promises. You are evidence of that. Because our God is the God of better than second chances. A second chance is normally about you proving yourself, a chance to do better. But God's second chance is, return to me and I'll return to you. It's a promise that your future in his grace is bigger and better than your past. Isn't this good news? This is good news for you and me. Maybe it's sometimes that you feel that you've done this big sin and you wonder if God will give you a second chance. Maybe it's that sin that just keeps coming back again and again. And you think, well, God will give up on me. I'd give up on me. He's not going to give me another chance. God's word to us is, return to me and I'll return to you. This isn't a promise that if you do the work, if you do better. No, it's a promise of grace. It's a promise of God's presence. So the question is, will you listen? Will you turn to him? Or will you stay in false rest and false peace, hoping that God's judgment will never come? The invitation, return to me and I'll return to you. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you as people who need not just a second chance, but overflowing grace. We thank you so much that the same grace, the same future you spoke through Zechariah, that we can take hold of this through the Lord Jesus. Please give us courage and comfort in this truth. May we turn to you, repent, that we might know your presence. We praise you for your plan that Zion, Jerusalem, would be an overflowing, borderless city. We praise you because this means salvation has come to us. And we ask you to continue to be drawing more people into your holy city, your holy people, even our friends and family and thousands of people in our region. We ask this knowing your mercy and grace in Jesus. Amen.